Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. This is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. And you're whispering, I guess, in an attempt to be to be quiet. Right. Because we're we're in a uh, well, a sort of quiet room. Um, it's padded. It's padded. Though on the other side of the padding, there are windows. I can't move my arms. And on the other side of the windows, there is a train mm-hmm. and traffic and occasionally helicopters and sirens, uh, birds slamming into the glass, all that sort of fun stuff. So occasionally we have to take breaks here as we record for outside sounds. But we attempt to, to keep the, world, the sound of the world at bay with all of this padding. Right. And also by keeping our volume up. When you whisper like that, you're actually doing us a disservice. Because we, as we'll discuss in this podcast, the quieter it gets, the, the more you hear. So I really get your attention, don't I? Yeah. Well, well let's, let's be quiet for a second. Let's see if they can hear the ambient sounds of the studio. Terrifying, isn't it? It kind of is, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you guys can pick that up. Probably not. But it does have kind of like a um, 2001 sound to it. Yeah. Just sort of the, the, the void, but something there. Um, yeah, so we are, we're taking on the subject of quietude, and we're taking on the subject uh, through a vehicle called literally the quietest room in the world. Yes. Now, the subject of, of quiet... The sound of silence and, and all that reminds me a lot of, of some of what we touched on in our, our older episode, um, Splendid Isolation. Mm-hmm. We were talking about isolation and to a certain extent, uh, sensory deprivation and, uh, and loneliness and talking about how for a lot of us, we have this weird thing where, you know, we, we want isolation. We want to move away from people. But then if, but we, if we get too much of that, it's not, we're not, we're going to go past the beneficial stage of, uh, of isolation and we're going to get into the, uh, the harmful levels of it. And likewise with quiet, we see a similar thing. I think more and more we live in noisy, busy lives. You know, we, the, the world is full of sound. The world is full of, uh, of movement and energy. And for a lot of us, there comes a point where you just want to be in a place where there's no sound. You want to find that monastery on a hill. You want to find that secret library, that secret garden, and just get away from it and shut it all off. And and it's, I think it's important to, to, to have that in some way, shape, or form. But then what happens if you do enter a place that is so quiet that there is, there is, there is almost no sound at all? Then what can that do to it's you? It's horrifying to the brain, really. <laughs> yeah. It's inconceivable. Because the brain is not, uh, we, we don't have, uh, monastery brains. We have, uh, right. we have, uh, you know, busy city brains. We have, uh, bi- uh, chirping bird brains. We have brains that need various bits of, uh, of input coming in and giving us a changing, constantly, um, altering view of the world. But if the view of the world is just nothing, then things can get out of hand. Well, and, and human hearing is certainly part of this, this something of the world, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a great article by George Mitchelson Foy called Shut Up and Listen from Psychology Today, and he talks about human hearing as being a beautiful, sensitive system of organic microphones, signal processors, amplifiers, like your home stereo, only better. And what happens when you switch on your home stereo? Well, it gives off a very faint hum. The same is true of your hearing apparatus. Like any sound system, it generates its own little hum when working. And so this is sort of a natural state of of ourselves and our beings and our machinery. We just don't think about it. We think about when we want to, you know, do a forced shutdown of our brain or um, enter into this silence, this quietude, mm-hmm. that it should all be absolute silence. 
But it cannot be. Right, because inevitably you you would just hear the sound of your hearing. You'll hear the the sound of your your blood circulating, of your heart beating, of your own breathing. Just kind of the stillness of the air almost. And uh uh you know, the the quieter it gets the more your ears listen. Yeah, I wanted to mention, if you guys will indulge me for a second, um, our tone map in our ears, because I think this is really interesting, because we usually think, oh, okay, well, we, you know, we take in sound, and it vibrates in our ear, and it goes to the middle ear, and so on and so forth, and it ricochets. Well, we we all know sort of the basics of that. So beyond, you know, making our eardrums vibrate, there's a lot going on. These vibrations cause nerve hairs in the inner ear to shiver, and that triggers electric signals that travel along the auditory nerve into the brain. And then one of the first stops is a patch of gray matter called the auditory cortex. Now, this is where everything happens. We usually think that uh, noise happens or the perception of it happens in the inner ear, but it's the auditory cortex in our brain. And each nerve is tuned to a particular frequency of sound and excites only certain neurons in the auditory cortex. And then as a result, the neurons in the auditory cortex form what is known as a tone map. And the neurons at one end of the auditory cortex are tuned to low frequencies. And the farther you go toward the other end, the higher the tuning of the neurons. So the auditory cortex, you can almost think of it as a musical instrument. Uh, and it is the musical instrument is played upon by these electrical impulses. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's a it's like an elaborate feedback system too, mm-hmm. because the neurons do more than just relay signals forward into the brain. They also signal back down the line, and they reach to to neighboring neurons that are tuned to nearby frequency, exciting some and then muzzling others. It sort of reminded me of when we were talking about memory last week about how. You know, with memory, you have certain neurons, excited clusters mm-hmm. that are um, rising up and tamping down other competing neurons to bring a, a memory forward. It's a little bit similar to the way that we're perceiving sound and processing it, right? You've got um, these excited neurons that are making their way and sort of crossing with other frequencies. And so these are kind of like feedback controls, and they allow us to sift through those incoming sounds and figure out the most important information and how to make sense of them without being drowned out by all the other meaningless noise around us. All right, well, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will enter the quietest room in the world. All right, we're back, and um, we've talked about sound. We've talked about how uh, it enters the brain, how we perceive it, how it contributes to our understanding of the world. And uh, we've touched on how when we begin to to crank down the sound in our life, we begin to hear more of the noises that are often hidden. Mm -hmm. Um, Even when the speaker, to your point, even when the speaker is not playing, there is a humming. And we don't notice the humming when the speaker is is blaring some music at us. But when the speaker is on, but silent, it's not really silent. Right. We've got that feedback system going on. Exactly. So... If we were to travel to Orfield Laboratories in Minneapolis, we would find a room that blocks 99.99% of all sound. That's right. And let's enter this chamber. And in order to enter this chamber, which is also called an anechoic chamber, we must pass through two vaults to get into it. And it is a room that is so soundproof, it is officially listed as the quietest place on Earth. This is according to the Guinness World Records. They wouldn't lie because they keep me updated on how many eggs people can eat and who's the fattest. So That's what they do, man. <laughs> 
They take names and they tabulate all this stuff. Uh, the room is used sometimes for technical analysis. For example, company, companies testing out the sound of a switch or a dial or some other mechanical component. In fact, past clients have included Whirlpool and Harley-Davidson, which use the chamber in an effort to produce quieter motorcycles. They want quieter motorcycles? Yeah, I know. I you would never know in Atlanta because it's just it's like packs and packs of crazy loud motorcycles. But it is also used, this room is also used as a, psycholo- a psychological chamber of will. Yes. So how's it constructed? What is, made, what is it made of? How do you make a, a room that is so devoid of sound? Because clearly we're not in one right now. Um, <laughs> and, and it would take quite a lot of work to really get that kind of, of soundless uh, uh, construction. For starters, the chamber features uh, 3.3-foot thick fiberglass acoustic wedges, double walls of insulated steel, and foot-thick concrete. And again, this enables it to be 99.9% sound absorbent uh, with a decibel rating of negative 9.4 dBA. So any sounds uh, below the threshold of zero dBA is undetectable by the human ear. It's true. Like, so it's virtually like zero sound being, you know, bounced off the walls here. And that's what's so interesting here, too, is that it is under the radar of human sound. Mm-hmm. As you say, minus 9.9.4 decibels. We, we hear at zero and above. Right. So what happens here, that's where the, the psychological will, uh, chamber of will comes into play. What happens here is that people go a little bit nuts. Yeah, because it's quiet. It's too quiet. quiet. Yeah, like crazy quiet. There's a mesh floor and the ceiling. And as you mentioned, you have that meter long fiberglass acoustic wedge in there. Uh, so what happens when you put a human being in there? Well, they become disoriented. Or they even experience hallucinations because after a few minutes, uh, founder Stephen Orfield, uh, told the Daily Mail, he says, your body begins to adapt to the soundlessness, picking up smaller and smaller sounds. You'll hear your heart beating. Sometimes you can hear your lungs, your stomach gurgling loudly. And then in the anechoic chamber, you become the sound. So all of this becomes really disorienting in mm-hmm. space and time. In fact, there's a chair in there. For the sole purpose of allowing people to try to figure out their place in space and time. Huh. Because they don't have the normal... I assume it's not squeaky. I would hope. Wouldn't that be the worst? <laughs> I would. But the idea is that we, we don't think about it, but the vibrations around us and uh, kind of give us these auditory cues about where things are in space and time. And if you don't really have that, then you begin to feel as though you're sort of unmoored from your reality. And it turns out that people who are in there for more than 30 minutes have to sit down. And the longest that anybody has ever made it in there is 45 minutes. Wow. Because, yeah, after a while, you begin to you begin to hear more and more of these real sounds... Uh, as you mentioned, but then you inevitably can end up hearing these unreal sounds as well. Audible hallucinations can occur. Exactly. Yeah, you've got that tone map kind of going nuts with what it does and doesn't have mm-hmm. available to it. And it starts filling in the blanks. Yeah, as you had mentioned in the last podcast, there's a 2009 study that shows that uh, in another chamber that it was just 15 minutes before people started to hallucinate one way or another. Because, again, our brains have not evolved to live in a world of such silence. Uh, we've, we, we've evolved to live in a world uh, full of sounds, sounds that our brain has to decipher in order to navigate our way safely through it. It's and true. so at this point, our brain is saying, I don't know, man, it's all quiet. There, let's, let's listen harder. Let's listen harder. Let's fill in the blanks because there might be something out there that could kill us, 
something out there that could uh, sustain us, and we need to know where everything is. Right. I mean, we we are built for sound, and and to take that away is to really scramble the brain and to for the brain to actually lose some of its purpose. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you will not be surprised that NASA has also used the room. Yes. And of course, they've ratcheted up the sensory deprivation levels by, of course, putting a water-filled tank in the room for astronauts to plunge into just to make it a little bit more intense and to figure out how long it takes before hallucinations start to set in. Yeah, because as we've mentioned uh, in a previous episode, the um, you know what is a spaceship, what is a, what is a space station, but a form of sensory deprivation. It is at the very least um, just a, a portion of our natural environment that is completely cut off, uh, like on a planetary scale from where we're supposed to live. So, and uh, so you're going to be isolated from outside sounds. Uh, sound is going to travel a little differently inside the capsule. It's just going to be a totally different experience. So the more we know about how this affects the human body and how we can uh, roll with the uh, with the effects and, uh, and also limit the uh, detrimental effects, all the better. And the more that uh, Commander Chris Hadfield can post those awesome videos, right, for us all to enjoy. Yeah, yeah it makes more sense. You know, it's like, of course you let the man bring a guitar up there yeah. and cut a music video because, uh, you know, aside from being very educational and, and really, you know, really overall just really great for the, the space program, all the, the videos he was doing up there and, and also the fun stuff. Uh, but also it keeps somebody from going nuts. It would have been a totally different YouTube uh, series if he had just been g- going gradually insane from hearing no sound and no music. Right, <laughs> right exactly. You know, among the uh, the many detrimental effects of, uh, of, of exposure to such prolonged and um, ponderous silence mm-hmm. uh, is a spontaneous uh, tinnitus. That's right, because it's, uh, it's believed to be a response of the auditory cortex, which we talked about, to the abnormal absence of all ambient sounds. And we really started to think about this uh, tonight as sometimes called tinnitus. I mm-hmm. believe that either way is, is correct. But we began to think about this. This really is the opposite of silence or what we think about silence because it's often called this sort of low ringing of the ears or this humming sound. And a lot of people are affected by it. And in fact, uh, one of our listeners, Aaron, actually emailed us about it uh, when we were talking about a different topic, emotions in outer space. And let me just read a quick excerpt of that. He says, Funny you should happen to mention my tinnitus request at the end of today's emotions in outer space episode, because as you guys were discussing how maddening the idea of a completely silent room would be, I was just thinking to myself, holy crap, you have no idea. Speaking of which, because he has tinnitus, of course, speaking of which... Here's an MP3 I made a while back, which simulates to the best of GarageBand's ability what my tinnitus sounds like. For the most convincing effect, play it in a quiet room at a level just above that of Whisper. Enjoy. You won't. Um, so we're going to have a quick clip of that so that everybody can kind of uh, understand what we're talking about when we talk about tinnitus. Yeah, so that I could see where that would that would get a little old really fast. Right. Yeah. Now it's it's worth uh, pointing out that that uh, about one in five people experience this, and uh, the, the 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 way that the noise is described uh, by people who um, who experience it, it ranges from a ringing to a buzzing to a roaring to a clicking to a hissing. 
uh, and it can uh, it can be caused by a number of different uh, different things. It's a symptom uh, mm-hmm. of an underlying condition. Uh, generally, we're talking stuff like age related hearing loss, ear injury, or circulatory system disorder. Although it's worth noting that tinnitus affects nearly half the soldiers exposed to blasts in Iraq and Afghanistan. And yes. as as we continue to have a lot of noise pollution in our modern life, this is one of those issues that keeps coming up again and again. That 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 more people are exposed and more people will have some sort of hearing damage because we'll talk about this in a little bit, but the hearing damage is directly related to that, that map, that tone map, uh, in our brains. But, uh, I wanted to just give a, a little bit more of a description of tinnitus. Um, Aaron, I thought would be a good person to ask about this. He said that he first noticed it as a kid. He said, I can't say when I first noticed it, but it was definitely when I was a kid. Uh, the way I always remembered it, and it's still true today, is that the sound of the ringing to me sounded almost exactly like the high-pitched sound you'll sometimes hear when someone would turn on a CRT television. And I had asked him, too, if, if you are in a moment um, when you have a state of flow or you're really enjoying yourself. He's a photographer, for instance. He's a really awesome photographer, by the way. Um, I said, you know, does it make it stop? And he said, yeah, uh, if I'm doing something engaging, I tend not to even notice. Not that it isn't there, just that it gets tuned out like a nagging spouse. Am I right? <laughs> oh, Aaron. Yes, you are. Um, so, yes, they're, they're, the brain can kind of deal with it. But for the most part, it's there and it can be very maddening. And people um, have been trying to find solutions to this because it can really be very unsettling. Um, and there are ways to go about dealing with it, but some of that is, you know, related to lidocaine, for instance, or cognitive behavior therapy. Mm-hmm. But there is no magic bullet for this. Yeah, I would mention that um, even portable music devices like MP3 players and, and the like can contribute to this exposure to loud noises over time in the same way that you know, an explosion uh, could do it, but mm-hmm. also prolonged exposure to loud music. Uh, so I, I, I do recommend... Uh, that if you have a, a listening device of this uh, nature, try turning down the max volume on it uh, to prevent uh, unnecessary damage to your hearing. I mean, you, you'll hear uh, various accounts of uh, famous musicians who suffer from uh, from this just because they've continually put themselves in an environment where they're around blaring speakers. Yeah, actually, one of our coworkers is a drummer in a band, and mm-hmm. he just told me today that he has it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there, there are a bunch of different reasons why people can experience it, even lightning. Um, there have been accounts hmm. of people who have been near lightning, uh, ground lightning strikes, and, and uh, have had some hearing damage as a result. Earwax blockage can do it. Yeah. yeah. To your point uh, that you made in a previous episode, um, you know, some earwax is good, but a lot of earwax is, uh, is bad. It could be bad. Yeah. Don't ear candle it out, though. Yeah. Right. Uh, ear bone changes. Um, uh, and then uh, uh, TMJ disorders. It's uh, there's a, there's a long list of things that can that can contribute to this. So what's going on in the brain when this happens? Um, tinnitus actually arises when that flexibility in our tone map goes bad. So again, we talked about the ways that those sound vibrations find the frequencies, and uh, they've got the tone map and the auditory cortex. So. Things kind of go awry when, let's say, you have toxic drugs or there's loud noises uh, and you have damage to the nerve hairs in the ears. It's really a story about damage to those hairs that are picking up the frequencies. And the injured nerve hairs can no longer send signals from the ear to the tone map. So, it's again, it's not the inner ear making the noise, but the tonal map. So if you don't have these incoming signals coming in as they normally would, the neurons undergo a transformation. They start to eavesdrop on their neighbors, firing in response to other frequencies. 
And they even start to just fire randomly without any incoming signals. And then as the brain's feedback control gets rewired, the neurons end up in a self-sustaining loop producing a constant ringing. That's why it's always that, that low level, although sometimes it's exacerbated and, and the volume of it seems to increase. But that's why it's always there and always present. And I thought that was very interesting because, again, what you're talking about here is a type of hallucination mm-hmm. by the auditory cortex or a crossing of signals or just absolute firing out of nowhere and trying to fill that void of sound uh, from the damaged hair receptor. Okay, so there are a couple of ways that you can kind of go about it um, in terms of treating it. And as I mentioned, cognitive uh, behavioral therapy is, is one of them. I did want to point out that this is something has been going on long into our history. This The Assyrians used to pour rose ex- extract into the ear through a bronze tube. Well, that sounds to, delightful. Right, to try mm-hmm. to alleviate it. The Roman writer Pliny the Elder suggested that earthworms boiled in goose grease be put in the ear. That sounds significantly less pleasant. This is my favorite. Medieval Welsh physicians in the town of Midify recommended that their patients take a freshly baked loaf of bread out of the oven, cut it into, and then, quote, apply to both ears as hot as can be born, oh. bind and thus produce perspiration, and by the help of God you will be cured. Oh, my goodness. I hope there are some illustrations of that, because I'm just picturing, like, medieval peasants out of... Uh uh, uh, out of a out of a Bruegel painting, you know, walking around with with, with <laughs> loaves of bread, giant loaves of bread stuck to their ears. That would be phenomenal, right? And then then they get teased. They're called bun ears. That's it's just no bunny ears, fun. Loaf ears. Yeah, oh man, yeah. just go go nuts with that. Um, so now you know. Fast forward to to our modern times, and there is an interesting um, tact that some physicians are taking, and this is music therapy. And I mm-hmm. thought this was really interesting. Uh, Christo Pantov and his team at the University of Munster successfully rewired their tinnitus patient's tone map by taking the patient's favorite music and removing from it audio frequencies that matched that person's tinnitus. Huh. So this is called notched music, and it contains no energy in that frequency range, the one that's bothering them, um, that's surrounding the, the tinnitus frequency. So there's actually a program... Um, that, that does this, that you can go in and do this. There's a YouTube video tutorial of oh, this wow. that will show you how to ascertain your tinnitus frequency and then to take it out of your favorite music. It's pretty cool. That is awesome. So after one year of listening to um, their favorite notch tunes, test subjects reported a significant decrease in the loudness of the ear ringing, and that was compared to a matched group of tinnitus patients who listened to a placebo or unaltered music. So what's more, and this is really interesting, is that the brain scans found that the neurons tuned to the tinnitus frequency in the auditory cortex became less active. So they saw this decrease. Now, what all this is pointing to is that this idea of brain plasticity that we've talked about again and again. And there are doctors who have likened it to when you lose a limb, Mm -hmm. a phantom limb, that you still get senses from that, but your brain begins to adapt and then it begins to take up the senses of the other fingers and incorporate that. So the idea is that perhaps the brain's auditory cortex, um, that map could be rerouted in a way that it could take up the other frequencies in a way that it doesn't create that feedback loop. Hmm. So there's, there's, um, some measure of success there, you know, obviously, again, there's there's no magic bullet here. Right, but there are a number of ways to, to mitigate it and, and to treat it. Yeah, yeah. There's, a, there's a path, at least, to say there, there could be a way to 
in the future at least, really isolate it and figure out a, a good solution. Yeah. Now, now, my one problem with that last study you mentioned was that even though there was a control group, uh, there was not a group that had pumpernickel on their ears. That we know of. That we know of. That we know of. Yeah. But I think in the, in the, in the name of fairness, you need your you need your, your normal control group, you need your pumpernickel group, uh-huh. you need your earthworm um Goose liver uh, pate group. You need your um, uh, your group that has the the, the rose water and the the, and the the copper tube. Well, I would argue that you would also go ahead and just say sourdough, rye. Sourdough, yeah, because I mean, perhaps the you know the the attributes of these different types of breads would have different uh, medicative effects. I don't know. Maybe there's an, an Ayurvedic method that uses non. I don't know. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure there are some Ayurvedic uh, methods for treatment uh, on this. I have to look up. I'm sure there may even be a mudra for it. I don't know. That's the little hand movement yeah, that you yeah. meditate with. A right? lot of those are digestion-based, though, so so maybe not. Now, I know what a lot of you are thinking out there. Tinnitus, it's, it's a pain. All right. And it's something that, would, that can be treated. Uh, there's no magic bullet. But is tinnitus a god? Well, if it's a god, <laughs> first let's, let's lay some groundwork. First, you'd have to say that nearly everybody would experience it, right? Mm-hmm. If you were going to take this this nutty theory and run with it. And, and we should point out George Mitchelson Foy, um, author of Shut Up and Listen, mm-hmm. uh, hit an article about this in Psychology Today. He is the uh, the chief uh, proponent of this uh, this theory. This, well, it's a, more of a thought experiment than yeah. anything, a philosophical thought experiment. Uh, but this is his brainchild. And I dare say he's probably the only person who thought of this uh Previously, it's interesting. It is a very interesting idea. He—it's not a serious argument that he's making, uh, but it is a very, very interesting philosophical question uh, that is potentially answered by his condition. Yes, and he lays lays the groundwork to this this uh, assertion of God and tinnitus by saying, "Okay, there there are a lot of people who could be sufferers of this." And in fact, I started to think about this. I started to think about misophonia, right? Mm-hmm. And that's. That's a sensitivity to certain noises, and that is particular to, to each person. And people have argued that misophonia exists within each of us. There's one little thing, like the rubbing of balloons for me. I can't stand it. Yeah, That's, people chewing their gum. Yeah, there's yeah. everybody has a trigger. So uh, George Mitchelson Foy brings up this study, this Swedish study from 1953, which took 80 college students who swore they didn't have tinnitus, and they put each one of them in a soundproof environment. And the authors, Heller and Bergman, concluded that audible tinnitus was experienced by 94% of the 80 apparently normally hearing adults when placed in the situation uh, where they had some ambient noise level. So what he was saying then, if that's the case, then most of us experience this. And if we experience this, then we generate our own sounds separate from the outside sounds of our hearing sense that is supposed to pick up and report. So it's outside of us is what he is saying. It's outside of ourselves. It has nothing to do with our consciousness. So if you uh, if you start getting uh, you know very platonic about this, if you dip into a little uh, René Descartes, uh, then you can uh, arrive at the point where you say, well, tinnitus is something that comes from outside myself. Mm-hmm. It, uh, it is, uh, in a way, the, the horrible strumming of some awful god, perhaps, or god itself. 
Now, we're going to leave it at that with uh, with this theory, but it is really interesting, and I highly recommend any of the more uh, philosophically minded of our listeners. Do check that out. Uh, you can find it. Uh, Shut up and listen on Psychology Today. George uh, Mitchelson Foy, uh, he'll get into uh, to all of the, the philosophical ins and outs of that. Now, I believe that he is a sufferer of tinnitus yes. as well. Mm-hmm. And um, and I don't think that he is trying to make light of this at all. No, no, no. Um, so... Please don't take it as that. Uh, but I think that he's just trying to put it in a context of how do you live with something that is so pervasive and so um, sometimes disorienting to your own mind. Yeah. Uh, you begin to think of it in this, as something that's otherworldly or outside of you. Yeah. And certainly it's there enough that you have to start thinking of new ways to approach it <laughs> and uh, to sort of play with the idea and even maybe enjoy it uh, on some level, uh, as he does here with this uh, thought experiment. You know, I was thinking about this movie, and um, you're going to kill me because I can't think of the name of it right now. But All right, in it, let's do it. Okay, let's try and maybe it out. maybe you'll remember this. Um, maybe it's called Another World. the The premise is there's this this female heroine who looks up and sees another Earth. Another Earth. There we another go. Another Earth. There you go. Yeah, I have not seen it, but I am familiar with it. Okay. Well, there's a scene when she talks about a Russian cosmonaut, mm-hmm. and he is in the space shuttle. And for six months, he's there, and at the beginning of his journey, he begins to hear this tap, 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 tap. And it's this awful tapping sound. Mm -hmm. And he realizes that for six months, he's going to have to live with this noise. Mm. And so he begins to make up this story about this noise, about how it's his lover, how it's this piece of music. And he recasts it as something to live with. And it's this beautiful moment in the film in fact, uh, if we can get some audio, we'll certainly share that with you guys. But I thought in some sense, tonight is sort of like that, or really any sort of auditory hallucinations outside of yourself. You sort of have to look, make them fit into your worldview. Yeah, because we're, we're pattern recognition engines. That's how we roll. We, things that, things that occur, even things that don't seem to line up with our senses, we have to come up with some sort of explanation for them. And in that, uh, George Mitchelson Foy's theory really rings true because it's kind yeah. of how we approach a lot of the things in our lives. Something unexplained happens, we have to explain it. We have to fit it into some understanding of the natural or even unnatural world. Cognitive bias, right? Yeah. In a good light. Yes. All right. Well, on that note, let's uh, let's call the uh, the robot over here and uh, just run through a few quick uh, listener mails. All right. This first one comes to us from Adam. Adam writes in and says, uh, "Hey guys, I've been enjoying your nose to tail series. You pick you're picking haggis as the food of choice. Brought back a funny memory. I had three months of training in Edinburgh, Scotland, with a company I previously worked for. During my first week, an instructor told us to try haggis as it was quote in season." Uh, he went on to explain that a haggis is a small animal that lives in the Scottish Highlands. It's hard to find, but at the time it was hunting season, so they would be available at restaurants. To catch a haggis was an intricate process. You uh, would first have to find a hole in the mountain, gra- in the mountain grass where it's obviously uh, been there burrowing. And then you stay uh, on the same lateral path, not climbing or descending. You put up a mirror and wait for the haggis to leave its home. The sight uh, of itself in the mirror would give it a heart attack and it would die. So although this sounds ridiculous, we were all in our early 20s from every corner of the globe, and I heard stranger stories that were from my Chinese and Omani colleagues. Uh, we had uh, haggis that night, and the next day our instructor told us he was just kidding and then went on to explain what we really ate. 
The restaurant we went to even played along, not knowing uh, we had been had. We asked if haggis was in season, and with a smile, he replied, of course. The Scottish definitely have a sense of good sense of humor and like to share their national dish, even if they have to fib uh, a bit to get you to try it. Thanks for the great show, and keep up the great work. Lots of love from Cyprus. Oh, well, and that's Cyprus. Adam, uh, our chief, the chief happiness officer, of course. That's uh, right. Uh, happinessplunge.com, who's traveling the world uh, doing good. That's right. I was very excited to know that he's in Cyprus right now. Um, so, yeah, haggis was the featured dish that went down our uh, digestive journey when we did the nose to tail. And uh, I love that. Yeah. And, and now I have this phrase to catch a haggis yeah. in my in my I, brain. I, I, and I'm I thinking of Hitchcock. Picturing that in my head, the haggis uh, running along in the you know the, the mountain habitat and burrowing. It's great. Yeah, a little haggis creature. What would that look like? <laughs> I suppose the the uh, the animals from which its organs come from. All right, here's one from um, our listener Jen. Jen writes in and says, "Dear Robert and Julie, Stuff to Blow Your Mind is one of my favorite podcasts, and I listen to, to it all the time. Thank you so much for the work you do. The episodes are always exciting and insightful. I was reminded of something you might be interested in when I listened to your episode, Undercover Actors in the Shadow Self, in which Julie mentioned how costly it is for secret agents to keep in mind." Uh, an entire cover story about themselves. Uh, when I was in grad school, I used to get sick all the time, whenever I got on a plane, which was often. It happened so often that I started joking about it. I said I had a, the immune system of a baby squirrel and that I was a canary in a coal mine because if anybody on that plane had a cold or the flu, soon I would too. I kept up the joking for almost 10 years until I realized that for the last few years I hadn't gotten sick at all, even though I'd been traveling at the same rate as before. My diet and exercise hadn't changed, so what was it? I'd come out. In retrospect, the break between coal miner canary uh, and quite healthy person can be placed cleanly in the couple of months that I came out as gay to everyone I knew. Even though my life had had periods of intense stress since then, I never, uh, I have never gotten sick at that rate that seriously again. I had spent my life uh, laying a cover story. Fi- uh, fiction written for other people over my real self. It wasn't until I shucked it off that I realized how heavy that story was. Anyway, your podcast made me realize that even if I change careers in the future, one thing I never ever want to be is a spy. Thank you for all you do. Best, Jen. I love that. That's That's a great story. That is a great story, and I think that that speaks volumes to how we feel when we are we feel like we're suppressing something or suppressing, yeah. you know, things that are very important about ourselves that, um, as she says, you, you're putting a cover story over yourself. Yeah, and, there's a cognitive and emotional um, toll uh, to be had when yeah. you have to layer these, uh, the, the, these, these layers of fiction over your real self. Mm-hmm. So thank you, Jen, for sharing that. So, uh, everyone out there, uh, I'm sure you, you have some, some feedback you'd like to give on this or other episodes, uh, particularly if you, like Aaron, uh, experience tonight in your daily life. Uh, let us know how you deal with it. Uh, how, what are the methods that you use uh, to treat it, either methods that have been uh, uh, given to you uh, or methods that you've sort of developed on your, is your own way of coping with it. Uh, we'd love to hear your feedback on this. So, you can find us in a number of places. Uh, of course, the mothership for everything we do is StuffToBlowYourMind.com. Uh, you'll find our blogs there. You'll find our audio episode, you'll find our video, um, you'll find your lost car keys, it's all there. Uh, you can also find us on various social media networks, I mean the big ones of course, Facebook, we're Stuff to Blow Your Mind on that, we're on Tumblr, we're Stuff to Blow Your Mind, on Twitter, we're Blow the Mind, and on YouTube, our channel is Mind Stuff Show. And just wanted to thank Aaron for sharing his story with us, for sharing the audio clip so that you all could get a sense of it too. And uh, if you guys want to write into us and let us know about your own experiences or any questions you may have, you can do so at blowthemind at discovery.com. 
For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 